Well, Happy New Year. Glad to see you all. And uh, welcome to our folks that are streaming with us uh, this morning as well. Uh, we are starting a new sermon series we're calling Forever Family. And um, yeah, I want to say a little bit about why we're doing that. You, you may have heard me use this little working purpose statement of saying that we want to be a gospel-centered family on mission to make disciples who make disciples um, on campuses and communities and among unreached people of the world. And so we've been using that with staff, we've been using that with elders, we've been using that some in our church summits. Uh, but really, if you want to sum it up with three key words, this idea of gospel and family and mission. And so for the next five weeks, we want to take that family piece and we want to dive down into that and, and explore what, what does it mean that we as a church want to be family, we want to be family uh, for each other. And some questions I think come to mind uh, when we think about that topic is, okay, how do I get in the family? Uh, what is the focus or the center of that family once I'm, I'm in the family? Uh, what are my resources that I have to work with uh, once I'm in that family? And then what are the roles and responsibilities in that family? Uh, what are my roles and responsibilities toward others? What are others' roles and responsibilities toward me? And so those are the, the kind of, of things, kinds of themes that will be uh, looking at over uh, the next five weeks. And this sermon is really about how you get in and what the center is. What, what is the focus uh, of the church family? And the way you get into most families uh, is you're born into them, right? You, you're born into a family. And then very soon, probably without your knowing it, you begin to revolve around whatever the center is of that family. And that could be everything from maybe a, a person in the family that mom or dad or one of the siblings just tends to have enough gravitational pull to pull everyone into, you know, their solar system. Or, or it may be that the center is adventure, right? That the family, no matter what they're doing, somehow they're trying to revolve around the next trip or the next exciting thing that they're going to do as a family. Sometimes for families, it's entertainment, that uh, the home theater is sort of the, the center of the family. And when can we get to the, the, the flickering screen and, and watch the next uh, Netflix series? Or maybe it's education, uh, where everything is revolving around getting a good education, uh, going to Latin camp in the summer, getting an SAT prep course so you can get into an Ivy League, and everything is just revolving around education or money, maybe making money, investing money so you can get more money. Uh, every family has a center. In my family growing up, um, we had a center, and that center was football. I know that may sound funny, but I grew up in Texas, so it's really not funny. It's, it's, it's serious business in Texas. Football, Texas high school football. My dad was a high school football coach, and during football season especially, each week was like this rev up to the Friday night game. And I remember as an elementary school uh, student, uh, the, the high school cheerleaders would come by and they would sell these spirit ribbons and they were like a quarter a piece, and they would say, you know, if we were playing the Tigers, it would, they would say, tame the Tigers, or uh, blast the Bulldogs, or, and, and everyone would pin these spirit ribbons 
you know, according to whatever game was happening uh, that week. Uh, on Friday, there were superstitions that you participated in. You wore particular clothing because that was your lucky you know, pair of socks because you, you wore these socks last week when we won and someone wear these socks again this week or, or maybe a particular meal that you eat because that's the, 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 the lucky uh, meal. And then the game itself was filled with lots of either celebratory screaming if you're winning or, or lots of sorrow and crying if you were losing that game then gave way to an after-game party where all the coaches and their families would come and we would have this big either session of lament because we just lost or big celebration because we just won. Then my dad would leave that party and it would be 10 or 11 at night. He would drive an hour and a half with the, the game film to have it developed. This was at a time when he had to have things developed. I know that's a hard for you to remember, but but you had to have it developed so that Saturday morning first thing, the, the football team could come together and watch the game film and watch their mistakes and work on the next week for the next game. Then on Sunday, we would take a break from high school football. We'd go to church, and then we'd watch the Dallas Cowboys in, in the afternoon, on Sunday afternoon. But then on Sunday night, we would, we would get, bring the game film out from Friday night. My extended family would come over. My mom would pop popcorn, and we would watch the Friday night game film from the, the Friday game that we had just seen two days before. Football was the center of our family, and it, it determined the family calendar. It determined the rituals, the celebrations, the sorrows, the busy time, the downtime, travel schedule. All of it revolved around the center of football. Every family has a center. Every family has a focus. The family that is the church is to have a center. And biblically speaking, that doesn't mean that it always has this center, but biblically speaking, that center is to be Jesus. It's to be Jesus. The person of Jesus and His work the person of Jesus and His work. And this is where we want to begin as we talk about uh, the forever family, that is, the church. What is the center? What is the focus of the family? Now, we could go, go to a lot of different texts in the Bible. Um, Patrick Grafton Cardwell, he put together this series, and so he's one of our newer elders and uh, he chose Hebrews 2, and then I got assigned Hebrews 2. And this is a very difficult passage that I started looking at last week, and I'm like, Patrick, what have you done to me? But the, 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 the deeper I went into this passage, the more glorious uh, this passage really became to me. And so the book of Hebrews, just itself, uh, is an interesting book, a unique book. It's written to Jewish Christians who are considering walking away from the gospel and going back to Old Testament Judaism. And so the writer is pleading with them for 13 chapters to, to not walk away from the gospel that they have uh, believed. And he uses a kind of carrot stick approach. Uh, there's a lot of glorious passages that just open up the, the glory of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done, and it, and it just draws you into wanting to continue to be a Christian. But then there's also passages that are stick passages that are, are severe warnings for if you walk away, this is the potential consequence. 
And this passage that Favorite just read is really in the carrot category. It is a glorious passage about who Jesus is and what he's done for the church and that Jesus should be uh, the center of the church. And again, it's, it's very complex. It feels very tangled up. When you read it, I felt like I was like trying to unravel an, a long extension cord that had gotten several knots in it. And every time I'd pull on a part of it, it would just kind of get hung up. But what I think is, is part of the point of the passage is that all this stuff, all this truth about Jesus, his person and work is all interconnected. And so if you try to pull one of those threads apart, it, it, it's, it's connected to these other threads. So, again, I, I want to read a, a, the first few verses here from Hebrews 2, partly just because we just need to marinate in this a little bit so we can hear what the passage is saying. Verse 5 says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, quote, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 8, What is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. End quote of that Old Testament quote. And then the author comments on that Old Testament quote. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, there's reoccurring patterns in this text I've just read and, and, the, and, and the, the next verses in this text that we're preaching this morning. And I want to give you some sort of theological categories to understand these reoccurring patterns. And I'm hoping that will help be kind of, kind of like keys to unlock this passage. And so those uh, categories or those theological terms are incarnation, humiliation, exaltation, and salvation. All right, so if you're taking notes, the, the, this is four of the five kind of major points. There'll be a fifth point at the end. But this is the, the major idea. So incarnation, humiliation, exaltation, and salvation. So incarnation, this is what we just celebrated at Christmas. That Jesus, who is fully God, takes on a human nature. He's now still one person, but he has two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. That's called the incarnation, right? He's, he's enfleshed. He's now taken on a human uh, body and soul. And so we see that uh, all over this passage, but one place is uh, verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now that lower than the angels is code for human being. So he's saying Jesus, who is divine, was made lower than the angels, was made a human being. He took on a human nature. That's the incarnation. Then it speaks of his humiliation. His humiliation is his suffering and death. And his incarnation is what makes it possible for him to suffer and die. If he only had a divine nature, he couldn't suffer and die. <laughs> he needs a human nature in order to suffer and die. 
And so you see that uh, also in verse 9, the part that says, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. So Jesus, made lower than the angels, he's incarnate, has gone through suffering and death, his humiliation. But there's also exaltation. So somehow through Jesus' incarnation and humiliation, he is exalted as sovereign king over all. That's the part about Jesus being crowned with glory and honor. The one who is incarnate, gone through humiliation, has experienced exaltation. The idea of exaltation is all throughout this passage. It is all throughout Hebrews. It's all throughout the New Testament. So things like verse 5, For it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come. Uh, Hebrews 1 just talked about how Jesus is better than angels. And so he's saying Jesus has sovereignty over the world to come. This quotation from Psalm 8, you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. He's saying that that psalm, which in general is talking about human beings, ultimately is talking about Jesus, the human divine king. Everything's being placed in subjection under his feet. That's his exaltation. The comments that the writer makes on Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's all exaltation talk. And then this crowned with glory and honor is exaltation. So he's experienced incarnation, humiliation, exaltation, which results in salvation. All this other stuff has had to happen in order for him to provide salvation. This is uh, what he means when he, when he says that he tasted death, that he might taste death for everyone. That he didn't just become the incarnate Son of God, experience the humiliation of death and the exaltation of being made the sovereign king over all things, just for his health, not, not just for his own uh, self, but he, he did that for us. He did that so he could taste death for us, so he could save us from sin and the effects of sin, namely death. Verse 9 really has all those things that we just talked about. It's, it's all in there. It's a great summary statement of what we've just talked about. So look at 9 again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, that's the incarnation, crowned with glory and honor, that's exaltation, because of the suffering of death, that's humiliation, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's salvation. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that, that was preached by the apostles. This is the gospel that is the, the center of our church. The person, the incarnate Son of God, and the work of that incarnate Son of God, his humiliation, his exaltation and the salvation that's provided for us. It is not Jesus who is merely some good teacher or spiritual guru or just one of the spiritual leaders of spiritual religions. He's the divine Son of God. Died in our place for sin, risen from the dead, exalted to the right hand of the Father, and He will come again. Like, this this is who He is. This is our center. 
And then, starting in verse 10, he, he dives deeper into that salvation. Right? So, it's, he's, he's like, he's just giving us a little taste, literally. It's like, he, Jesus tasted death for everyone. You're like, oh, that sounds good. That's good news. And then he's like, let me dive deeper down into that. Let me, let me explore that idea of salvation. And so, 10 through 13 is really an exploration of that salvation. And what we're going to find is where this salvation comes from and what this salvation is for. And so verse 10, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, and I, the children God has given me. So you see all those quotes. It's all Old Testament quotations there. So what he's saying, this is, this is like this brief of a summary statement of that little passage I just read, that salvation is from God, it's for God, and it's for God's family. Salvation is from God, it's for God, and it's for God's family. What do I mean that it's from God? Look at, look at verse 10 and 11. I, it, it's so, the language in 10 and 11 is so much um, about God directing salvation, that, that, that salvation is coming from God, um, where he's saying, uh, it's fitting that he from whom, for whom and, f- and by whom all things exist. That's, that's the first part, where he's, he's just like, all of reality comes from God. All of creation comes from God. Salvation comes from God. Everything comes from God. You, there would be nothing if there was not what God has brought about by his sovereign decree. Right? And so it is for whom and it's by whom, uh, it's for him, by him, and then he's the one bringing many sons to glory, right? Again, that's God directing salvation. He's, he's taking the initiative, bringing many sons to glory. Uh, he's the one who is making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So, so here, God is making the founder of their salvation, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about, that, 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 that God is making the founder, which is Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now, what, it's not saying that Jesus um, it was imperfect and needed to be made perfect. He's saying that, that Jesus completed this salvation through suffering, through his humiliation. But, but it's, God, it's God directed. He's making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And then he says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one, force, uh, one source. Um, that, that God who is who's saving and setting apart people for salvation, um, that, that that is coming from one source. So all that talk is about salvation coming from God. And then it's, if, if, that's, if it's all coming from God, then ultimately it is for God. That our salvation, that all, all that went into that, that incarnation, humiliation, exaltation, salvation, all of that is for God. Now think about it. Again, verse 10, if everything is 
for him and from him, uh, both creation and salvation. And he, what is he doing? He's bringing many sons to glory. That's all for God. That glory is for God. So salvation ultimately is bringing glory to God. Now, what is this idea of these sons uh, to glory? So the, partly what salvation is doing, it is, it's taking uh, image bearers who were supposed to be reflecting glory back to God, but because of sin have become glory absorbers. Now salvation, it, it, it saves them from sin and it, and it redeems them and recreates them to become glory reflectors again. And so those that were once glory absorbers now are sons of glory. They're reflecting back the glory of God as they were intended in the creation. Salvation is for God. This is what the, the reformers of the, of the 16th century were getting at in the fifth of what are known as the five solas. Uh, the five solas are, I think, a helpful uh, summary of gospel truth that, that kind of help us stay on the track of what is the gospel. And sola uh, is a Latin word that, that means only or alone. Um, quickly, those five solas are sola scriptura. Uh, this means that the scripture is the authoritative source for gospel doctrine. Doesn't mean that we don't read other things. That it doesn't read, mean that there's not other truth out there in science and creation. And uh, it, 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 but it does mean that Scripture is the authoritative source for gospel doctrine. Sola Scriptura, sola gratia, grace alone. That salvation is 100% a gift from God. It, it's not like. God and I come together and I'm like 10% of it and he's 90%. No, God is 100% giving the gift of salvation. Sola fide, uh, faith alone. But the way you appropriate that gift is by faith. Faith is the instrument through which you receive the gift. It's not something that, that you, you receive because of some kind of work that you do. That then God says, oh, you did a good work, so I'm going to give you the salvation. No, it, it is through faith alone. Solus Christus, that this faith alone is in Christ alone. Right? And so uh, based on the scripture alone, we would say it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is, this is the, the, the gospel. This is how a person can be saved. Then there's a fifth uh, sola, and it's the sola Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. And sometimes that's, that feels like a little bit of a, just an add-on. Like, why, why is that there? But, but what they're getting at is that salvation ultimately comes from God, and it's for God. It, it is to give glory to God. It is for the glory of God alone, that our salvation is God-centered because everything comes from God, and everything is for God. And so it is a a glorious thing that God is doing for himself that brings glory and honor to him. And so this incarnation, humiliation, exaltation, salvation, it comes from God and it is for God. It's also for God's family. It's for God's family. Again, using this idea of bringing many sons to glory. 
Um, that's family talk. And sons in the ancient world were, were given greater honor, all right? And that, that's, that's not okay in terms of, of uh, fairness to men and women, but this is just the way things were in the ancient world, okay? And so it's describing this, this honor given to sons and that the divine son of God has glory and honor, but that through his salvation that he's providing, he is providing an, a way for other sons to be adopted into the family. And these adoptees are also being given glory and honor, and not because of something they did, it's not because of their merit, but it is by grace alone. It's a gift. And so what's happening through salvation is that sinners are becoming sons. Sinners who were once these glory absorbers are becoming glory reflectors, sons of glory. Now, you may say, well, why, why don't we change this to sons and daughters? My gosh, this is so patriarchal. It's driving me crazy. Well, partly that's not what the text says. And so every time we take the text and we say, well, let's just add or change a little bit, we're, we're, we're starting to unravel the, the text a bit. It's not the end of the world. I know some of your translations probably do say sons and daughters. But it is communicating something that is a contextual thing from the ancient world. And so whether you're a male or female, you, you want to be in this category of honored son, theologically speaking, okay? And so this idea of, of being made a son of glory. Now, these sons of glory are also brothers with one another. This is also family talk. Verse 11, did you see that? This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He, being Jesus, not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So again, he's diving deeper into this idea of salvation. What is, what is salvation accomplishing? It, it's, it's causing sinners to become sons, but it's causing strangers, even enemies, to become siblings. This is the forever family. This is the forever family. That we're becoming, the, the, through salvation, the, the children of God forever. And we're becoming siblings with one another forever through the salvation that's provided in Jesus. And this salvation is something that Jesus is constantly working out in the church, even now. He's doing it right now. Through His Word, by the Spirit, he, He's at work in this church, in this moment. And so he, He's doing that, and here's your fifth $10 word through His identification. Okay, so incarnation, humiliation, exaltation, salvation, identification. And He start, starts to talk about this identification idea in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." 
So he says the children are sharing in flesh and blood. Who, who are the children? Well, the children are the divine Son of God, Jesus, and us. <laughs> We're sharing. We're bo- we both have flesh and blood. And so Jesus is identifying with us by taking on a human nature. And that enables him to acquire salvation for us. If he hadn't experienced the incarnation, he could not have saved us. And so, so he, he is able to save us. And here we see, not only has he saved us from sin and its effects, death, but he saved us from hell. He adds another, uh, another good news, a piece of good news here, the power of death, that is, uh, the one, uh, uh, sorry, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He adds, we even get victory over hell. And so this has been brought about because Jesus has identified with us as a human being and he's brought us from a slavery to sin to being children of God and siblings with each other. Code for that is the offspring of Abraham. Right? He uses that phrase. And that's code for the people of God. Saying, church, you're the people of God. And because of what Christ has done for you and the salvation he's provided for you, you're in the family. You're in the family of Abraham. <laughs> You've been made a child. You've been made siblings. And then he continues to speak of this ongoing identification, verse 17. Therefore, he had, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So again, there's this talk of, of incarnation and identification when, when he says, made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus was fully human. He wasn't a fake human. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't faking it. He really was enfleshed as a human being. And because of that, he was qualified to save us from our sins. And here he, he goes deeper into the salvation picture and gives you another, under, just another layer of understanding of what Jesus was doing at that cross. And ESV translates this propitiation. And uh, New International Version uses atonement, which is a little more of a general term, but, but really if you want to use a technical term that's being used here, propitiation is a much more helpful term. So what's, a pro, what's propitiation? So you think about it this way, that sinful human beings are justly condemned by a just God, right? We're, we're under this uh, condemnation. So what that means is, is because of our guilt, God can't be propitious towards us or favorable towards us unless a propitiation is offered up to that God and he can then become propitious favorable towards us. There's only one propitiation that could make God propitious towards us, favorable towards us, and it is the death of Christ in the cross. That is the one propitiation that can then shift God from having to, 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 to merely judge us for our sins and instead can give us mercy because Christ has taken that judgment that we deserved. And again, he, the writer is just, he's just going deeper and deeper into the, the, the beauty of our salvation. 
all that it has acquired for us, both personally as individuals, uh, in terms of our identification as children of God, as t- in terms of our community as brothers and sisters in Christ, all of that's made possible because of the person and the work of Jesus. And then as if that wasn't enough, <laughs> he adds just one more little uh, thing here at the end here in verse 18 uh, in regards to the identification. And he says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being, tempt- are being tempted. That this amazing identification that has purchased our salvation, it's ongoing. Like Jesus, because he's taken on human flesh and gone through his, his suffering and death, he can identify with us even now in our suffering. And this ongoing identification and, and, and ministry that he has with the church is through the power of the Holy Spirit, which Tommy's going to talk about next week. So I'm going to go too far down that road. But this is what makes us a forever family. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The incarnate Son of God through his humiliation, exaltation, salvation, and identification with us even now. This is what makes us a forever family. So how do you get in the family? The text doesn't really answer that. Partly because the book is written to Christians. It's written to people that have already heard the gospel, believed it, and are now considering walking away from it. And so he's approaching them as believers. How do you get in? You just show up? I mean, what what is it? Well, you're born into it. We said earlier, how how do you get into most families? You're born into it. (laughs) Well, this is how you get in the Christian family. You're born into it, but not biologically. You're born spiritually into the forever family. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's how you get in the family. You're born of God. You're born through faith, right? By grace, through faith. He's like, those that received, those who believed in his name, they became children of God. And they were born not of human flesh or of of, of human will. They're they're born of God. God supernaturally saves you. He he brings you from being uh, a sinner, glory-absorbing sinner to a, a son of glory. And... From, from strangers to siblings. And so perhaps you have not yet received this Christ, his person, his work by faith. I want you to do that today. My hope is you see the glory in this passage. He's like, I want that. I, I want to receive that truth by faith. But not only that, you would be joining Jesus by faith, but you'd also be joining his family. It, it's, it's not, a, a, I'll take Jesus, but I don't want Jesus' family. That's not how it works. <laughs> this is why Jesus instituted baptism. You have to go to the family to get baptized, to get baptized yourself. He, wa- he wants you to join Jesus, and he wants you to join his, his family. And so whether you realize it or not, spiritually speaking, that is what happens when you become a Christian. 
And you may be longing for that forever family. In fact, I know all of us are. And we may have really horrible biological families. We may have really wonderful ones, but none of them are perfect. And so there's a longing in us for, for that forever family to be a son or daughter of God and to be siblings with one another. And so if, if, if that's speaking to you and, and, and you're, you're, you're sensing that, like, I want that. I want to put my faith in Christ today. I want to encourage you to do it, to be just what John 1 describes, one who receives him, who believes in his name and becomes a child of God. If, if that's something that you want to talk about further, I, I want to encourage you to do that. You can uh, both reach out to us, and, and I'd, I'd be happy to have that conversation, or even look on our website at mercyhouse365.org slash respond, and it gives some more explanation of the Christian faith and what it means to put faith in Christ. And maybe you also want to join the church, and again, reach out to us. We, we would love to talk to you more about next steps for joining the church. But for those of us that are we're in Christ, we're uh, we're, we're making the local church family a, a priority. It's a reminder to us that the focus of this family is Jesus. It's Jesus, His person, His work. It's, it's not friendship. It's, it's not the family. The family's not the focus, right? The mission's not the focus. Fun isn't the focus. Humanitarian aid is not the focus, Political action is not the focus. It's not the focus. doesn't mean those things don't matter. It doesn't mean we don't participate in those things. But Jesus is the focus. He is the center of the family. Uh, for those who have, uh, you, you, you're raising kids, you're, you're, you have a family that you're trying to cultivate, I want to encourage you to make Christ the center of your biological family. <laughs> I think the United States right now, Christianity in the United States, there's so many maybe church-attending families that might even sit through a sermon like this and say amen, but then go home and they have a totally different center. And so if you have a family that you are shepherding, that you are growing, as we enter 2021, to be thinking through, okay, how do we make Christ the center of our family? Not adventure and entertainment and soccer and whatever else, but Christ. And it's so rich. <laughs> it's so rich. I mean, we just got to spend a few days with all of our kids at Christmas. And it, Christ was at the center. <laughs> and it was sweet to, to be able to fellowship with our kids around the gospel. And so be thinking through um, how can you do that if, if you are cultivating a family or if you're thinking in the future like one day I'd like to have a family be thinking about that how do I make Christ the center of that family uh, Christ really became more the center of my own uh, family of origin as I entered into high school and into college my mom and dad got more serious about the gospel and it, it changed them and it, it has changed our family, our conversations, and the ways in which we focus uh, in terms of Christ and His Word and who He is and what He's done. So let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the glory of the gospel. 
of your person and your work at the cross. And what that means to us as individuals and what that means to us as a a church. And I pray, Lord, that that as we are reminded of this in this passage, that that it would just draw our hearts, warm our hearts to you as our center, you as our focus. And it would elicit worship. It would elicit obedience. And it would elicit joy because of the glory of what we've been given. And that we would be sons of glory. We'd be reflecting your glory because we've been saved from our sin and we've been made siblings with one another in this church. And we pray as we enter into 2021, God, you would, you would help us. We really we hoped we were uh, way past the, the experiences of 2020, and yet it seems that there's many, many more challenges ahead, and of course there always is, but God, we, we pray for your mercy on us, God, your grace, that you would identify with us, that you would come close to those who are suffering and encourage those who are discouraged and those who just want to quit, who want to walk away from the gospel, perhaps even as the, the Hebrews, um, the, the receivers of that original Hebrew letter were, were feeling. God, would you, would you awaken that hunger and that desire to follow you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength this morning? And so we, we're just grateful, grateful for the glory of what we've just looked at in this text and for what it means to us. Lord, would you awaken us and even greater faith for this year to come. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.